This week, after two beers, it's Matt Van Wyk. So it sounds like a lot of BS when I, we say, oh, ale song, and here's what I do. But we, I really feel that way because we're tasting each barrel and we're, we're doing experimental blends and we're trying to find the best harmonizing sort of flavors, um, which is way different than, than normal brewing. Usually what you do is you make a batch, put it in one stainless steel tank. When it's done fermenting, you throw it in the other stainless steel tank to carbonate it, and then you throw it into your bottles or kegs or cans, and then you drink it. And that's a great formula, but it's kind of not what we're doing. Here are a full conversation after this. After Two Beers is brought to you by Guinness, brewers of the world's most famous pub beers for over 200 years, and by All About Beer magazine. Explore the culture of beer through award-winning news, reviews, education, and insights. Print and digital subscriptions are available by visiting allaboutbeer.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest beer news and to connect with fellow enthusiasts. This is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer magazine. In more than a decade writing about the beer industry, I've found that the conversation really gets interesting after everyone had a few beers, and thus, this podcast was born. On each episode, I sit down with our guests, and we don't start recording until after we've had two beers. The show is about insightful answers to hopefully interesting questions. Recently, I sat down with Matt Van Wyk, an Oregon-based brewer who, after years of working for other people, partnered with some folks to open up his own place. At Song Brewing and Blending, he's been able to get back into the brewery, focus on his passion of barrel aging, and wants to bring the good parts of wine culture into the beer space. We got together at the Blind Tiger Alehouse in New York City, where we both started off drinking a Saison from the Bridge and Tunnel Brewery before moving on to Pilsner from Threes. I started off by asking him what went into the decision to hang his own shingle. Well, I have been very fortunate to have some great jobs in the brewing industry. I've worked for some great breweries, um, and, and I, I feel really blessed to have done that. But there gets to be a point sometimes in a brewer's career where, you know, you, you've done this long enough. Um, you learn some things about the business, um, which is a huge part of it because it is a business at the end of the day. You know, we, we take our art and our craft very seriously, and that's, the beer is important, and that's first. But at the same time, you're running a business. And sometimes when you work for a company and you're the employee, you know, you want the best for the company, but it's, it's not yours at the end of the day. And so, um, so, it's, so it's a different thought process when you're an employee versus when you're uh, someone who um, has their own business. In my particular instance, I had a great job at Oakshire Brewing in Eugene, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the timing was just right. Um, I am partnered with two great guys who complement uh, my skill set in a way that I could never do it by myself. Um, we've got some business expertise, we've got some cellar and, and barreling expertise. Um, and even though I've been at this for 16 years now as a professional brewer, um, I needed that. And, and so they came to me. Um, the, the industry was, was ripe for this with a lot more breweries opening, um, even though that can be hard uh, competition-wise. Um, in my market, I felt there was a hole and something that I could do that I was passionate about. Because in reality, when you're working for a brewery too, things change depending on the size of a brewery that you are. And uh, some of us who have been at it for a while become managers. And I think that's probably the key to it is um, I became a brewery manager where I'm, I'm managing people. And I have no uh, education in management, business management. Uh, 
managing people is easy for me, but I wanted to get back to making beer. And right. I've got this small brewery ale song that um, I can have a real creative outlet. And there are no employees. It's the three founders, and um, I'm back in the brew house again. So all those things together made it right to, to leave my current job and start my own. Is it easier or harder to open a brewery these days? Well, as compared to when you first got into sure, the industry. Sure. Well, having not opened a brewery when I was working the first, you know, 15 years of my career, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I do know that uh, I would say it's probably easier to open it. And the reason being, um, uh, there are a lot more resources out there. You know, just from the Brewers Association, our professional um, uh, industry group, um, that really helps us. They've got books now on starting a brewery. Sure. And of course, you can access, access lots of information on it. And more importantly, there's a lot more people out there. And and despite the competition that is going on in our industry right now, there's still a lot of people who are willing to help and give you advice and, um, and really tell you what they did and, and what mistakes they made. Um, and that, that still happened, in, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I just think it's happening more. Uh, and also, the last thing is, I think the TTB is really seeing, that would be the Tax and Trade Bureau. Right, the feds, that, yeah. Yeah, the stuff you have to get, all our regulation, it's not becoming easier. There's still a lot of stuff, but they're trying to streamline some processes and make it a little bit easier and faster because they don't have the people power to quite get it done with all the breweries opening. Um, so they're cutting out some of the, the crap that was there that you had to jump through. Right. Um, and so you're seeing some, some faster labeling approval times and license approval times. So I think that's a good thing. So what are you doing different at Ailsong that you've done or that you were doing at the other breweries? Throughout my brewing career, I have been able to... Um, dig into barrel aging of beer and uh, that started at Flossmoor Station in uh, south of Chicago. When it's a great brewery. It's, like, it's in a train station, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a beautiful right old, yeah. uh, probably like 110 year old train station now. Um, a, a great place that's been open since like 96. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's at least 20, yep. if not more. Yep. Yeah, they just celebrated their 20th anniversary. In fact, Crazy. I went back there and brewed an old beer, Wooden Hell, which is a, you know, a beer advocate rate beer, white whale that, you know, not everyone knows we only bottled 35 cases of it okay. but it, it became this epic thing you have to have well they're rebrewing it we actually we rebrewed it i went back and and uh hung out with the brewer and uh, we rebrewed it and it's being released this spring and um so great people great brewery um but i followed todd ashman right all of the nerds by the way have stopped listening <laughs> and now they're getting tickets to go to chicago <laughs> that's to, right to, yeah, Wood, wooden those. hell part two is coming out uh i think the day before dark lord day flossmore station calls it pre-Dark Lord Day, and, and they're, they're jumping on the lots of beer geeks in the crowd, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a huge thing, so hopefully I'll be back there when we release that, um, but anyway, I, I followed Todd Ashman, um, who is pretty well-renowned, you know, other than Greg Hall at Goose Island, who's, you know, is given credit for really throwing a beer in a bourbon barrel, Todd Ashman was right there on his heels, yeah. and doing great things with bourbon barrels. So and Todd's out in California. He now. is. He's at 5050 Brewing. Yeah. Yep, in the Tahoe area, Truckee. And um, uh, he's doing awesome. Um, and I learned a lot from him because, you know, we're still friends today. And uh, he taught me a lot about barrel aging. And I, when I followed him at Flossmoor Station, I got a lot of practice, I guess. And then moving out to Oregon, when I worked for Oakshire Brewing, um, I was given some freedom to start a barrel program. 
we had wild beers, we had clean beers, um, and that started to become a passion of mine. I really enjoyed um, putting stuff in barrel and using the fifth ingredient. You know, you get the four ingredients in beer and you throw a barrel on top of it. To me, it's that's the fifth ingredient. So lots and of not bur- just wood, but the barrel. That's right. That's right. You know, you've got the wood, but you've got what was in the wood before. You've got other organisms you're putting in. If you're making a Brett beer, sour beer, whatever the case is, and then you throw in fruit. And there's just a world of possibilities you can do to layer flavors on top of beer, and that just intrigues me. And so, uh, I really enjoyed that. Like I said, I had a lot of freedom and flexibility, um, but. A lot of breweries these days are barrel aging, no matter the size. You know, you've got places like Founders in the Midwest. You've got Firestone Walker on the West Coast. And 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 we could sit here and make a long list of people who have large barrel programs. Well, sure, I, especially with 5,000 breweries in the country. That's right. Yeah. However, most of those are very tiny percentage of what they do. You know, 1% or less of the beer they sell comes out of barrels. What I wanted to do was open something where we were really focused on the wood, the barrels, uh, and kind of that lost art. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, there's huge barrel programs that are way bigger than our brewery, but we thought if we could kind of focus the beers that we make on the art of barrel aging, it would be a great little niche within our small niche of craft brewing. Um, and, and to that end, we're opening a, a small um, wine country um, tasting room in the south end of the Willamette Valley. It's the Willamette uh, AVA, and it's a great place to go out and do some wine tasting and um, also to drink a beer now because this spring I'll have a tasting room open uh, that's featuring barrel-aged beers. What, what do you wish you had known going into opening up a new brewery that you thought you might, like, oh, this is going to be fine, and then it turned out to be like a true pain in the ass. Like, what, what, now that you're open and now that you're up and running, what do you wish that you knew now? You know, it's interesting that I'll, I'll probably think of something in just a second and I'll, and I'll jump in and say it that I didn't know then that I wish I knew. But I'll tell you, it's something I did know and it's still a pain in the butt. That is just patience and time because everything takes longer. And everyone will tell you that opening a business or a brewery, whatever. You gotta wait on this permit. You gotta wait on that. And I knew it. I know. I love visiting brewers though, who are just about to open or say like, "Oh, we're gonna be open in May." And I'll kind of look around and I'll be like, "I'll see you in November." Yeah, yeah. yeah it it yeah. never our, our it construction never works out. finally started um, in February this month, and uh, everyone says now, "Well, what's the timeline?" And I said, "I have stopped giving timelines because I did that for a while yeah. and I was wrong every time." Yeah, and so so and it's gotta be personally frustrating. Absolutely. Right, because if you're thinking May in your mind, and yeah. then May yeah. comes and goes, and you're yeah. at your 4th of July barbecue, and people are saying, uh, so when are you guys going to open? Yeah. should have yeah. been May. Yeah. yeah. Well, in our case, oh, we were, my one of my two business partners uh, is getting married in May, and we thought, what a better place to have it than our <laughs> country tasting room. Oh, this is, sure. It's going to be course, awesome. Yeah. And so, uh, I think they've scrapped that idea, even though I think we're going to be open in May, um, but... You put yeah, all you your eggs in the basket. Out, you don't want to send out that invitation yeah. and have uh, guests right. like dance around backdoors and stuff. Yeah, that's uh, uh, yeah. not quite as romantic as, as as people were thinking. I remember talking to you um, right after you left Oakshire, uh, but before you had announced uh, Ale Song, um, and you had finally just settled on the name, and that even took longer than than you thought. Yeah, yeah. We've mentioned the five thousand breweries in our country, right? And interestingly enough. You also can't use a name of someone who has a winery or a distillery because it's all in the alcohol industry. Right. And 
whether you can get around it or not, you'll probably get a cease and desist letter. So there are a lot of really great names for breweries that are taken. Um, but the whole time that we had thought about a name, Ale Song, we were looking for something, like I've talked about the wine country tasting room and barrel-aged beers. We knew we wanted something that didn't sound like a winery, but evoked some of the emotions of a winery maybe. Uh, and the other thing is all three of us at the brewery, the founders, um, have kind of a, an interest in, a passion for, and, and um, a joy of music. And so we were going with all kinds of, of musical sort of terms. And we had lists and lists and lists and lists. And, and Ale Song made it to the top. It turns out it's not a brewery, it's not a winery, and uh, we were able to get it through the patent. Weird bush. if it was a winery. Uh, but yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> <laughs> a wine song. We tried right. that too. It didn't work. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so we just thought it sounded great. Um, a lot of people have told us they really like it, and and you know, some of the marketing we have with our brewery and promotion you know, sounds like that, oh, you paid someone to write that or something. But really, when we say that we we look at beer like a song, like a composition where there's many parts joining together and, and the, the harmony of all of it is way more beautiful and enjoyable than each individual person playing or singing. Um, I think when you think about barrel-aged beers, and we do, you know, we're called Ale Song Brewing and Blending for a reason. We blend barrels back together, and I think you can really create quite a composition with beer by doing that and and it so sounds like a lot of bs when I, we say oh ale song and here's what i do but we, i really feel that way because we're tasting each barrel and we're, we're doing experimental blends and we're trying to find the best harmonizing sort of flavors um which is way different than than normal brewing usually what you do is you make a batch put it in one stainless steel tank when it's done fermenting you throw it in the other stainless steel tank to carbonate it and then you throw it into your bottles or kegs or cans and then you drink it, and that's a great formula, but it's kind of not what we're doing. Is that the auto-tune of... Uh... <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, yeah, yeah. But, so, I mean, talk to me just a little bit more about how that all comes together then, uh, because there is a lot of thought that goes into your beers, um, and there is just... It, 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 I think with 5,000 breweries that are out there these days, the majority are doing just what you said of just, you know, making a base beer, transferring yeah. it, transferring it, packaging, serve. And, and I probably simplified it too. You can have no. one, wonderfully complex beers doing it that way as well. Uh, uh, agreed. But I mean, but there's also a lot of great trial and error that comes, that comes through with what you're, with what you're yeah. doing. Yes, for sure. Um, you certainly can put a song together, put a beer together and it may not and quite no, work. Yeah, nobody wants to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, any, and also my analogy... can write a song. That's yeah. right. My analogy is also somewhat limited in that um, we're dealing with a living organism here, right? There's there's still yeast in, in our bottles. There's, there's Britannomyces in our barrels, and so things are continuing to evolve. With music, if you put together a composition, you have a, a conductor making the orchestra, or you have, you know, whatever analogy you want, you put it in the can and it's done play it on the radio and, and enjoy it. So it's not a perfect analogy because what we have is we do this blending, all the different barrels, we make a beer that we really love, and there's still some change in, in, in the beer as it ages. Uh, and, and all beer does that, but when you have live beer, it's almost like, sort of like the real ale. You got yeast in the, in the bottle doing something different, um, and it can change over time, which is interesting. I, I imagine that the finished product, uh, when it hits all those right notes, is something that you are uh, incredibly pleased with. But I, I imagine there's also got to be a great deal of frustration. 
There is the a thing, lot of frustration. You know, because, because there's things that you just can't control. Yeah. And yeah. if it doesn't want to do what you yeah. ultimately hope or ultimately pushed it towards yeah. doing, uh, what's that like? I, well, I got a whole list of those experiences. <laughs> you know, one is when you're making beers like this, you need to have patience because you need time. So you put it in the barrel, and it's a very... Um, most the beers you make are off. When you're talking wild and sour beers, you know, Brett, funky, sour beers, um, you need time because it's a terrible environment for those organisms, the yeast and the bacteria. Um, there's not a lot of food source, and so it takes time for them to chew on things and to create these flavors you're looking for. So you have a beer you want to turn tart, slightly sour, and it's not getting sour, it's very frustrating. You go back and taste that barrel again. You're like, okay, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait. And you might have 12, 18 months where the beer's finally starting to come around. And that and that's tough. And then the second thing that's very frustrating is that we bottle condition all of our wild and sour beers. And so we knock on this table right, right. here. This things, wooden table th- here. Things have been gone very well for our carbonation. But there's nothing worse than spending a day hand bottling. And we do things very manually at our brewery hand bottling all day and then you can't get it to carbonate and you've got this flat beer that's supposed to be very sparkly and with a huge fluffy head on it that's frustrating it's hard yeah and what do you do at that point well um luckily knocking on this wood again uh uh we haven't had that now i haven't been open a year yet um and we'll see what i do i have seen a brewer friend of mine who has a sleeper series that is at his tasting room and so he's not happy with the carbonation. There's bubbles there, but it's not as carbonated as you want. So he sells it at a little reduced price and says, great tasting beer, not as carbonated as I want. Here's the price on this one. Great idea for something that didn't quite work out. The other option is just to wait. And if you have a beer package with Brett, there's a yeah. good chance that the Brett will, given the right temperature and whatnot, carbonate the beer. Exactly. And so. wait, just wake up at some point. Yep. And yeah, yep. you just never know. Pretanomyces is yeah. a strange thing. It can... Saccharomyces, most of the yeast that's used in craft brewing, professional brewing, any kind of beer, is very predictable. You know where it's going to finish. You know the flavors and aromas given certain temperature parameters. But, man, you throw bread in, and it is not as predictable. It's like Kanye on stage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You just never know what you're going to get. So... (laughs) Look out. Uh, yeah. That, that is about as hip a cultural reference that I will ever make, so I was glad that you were I, here for it. I didn't expect it to come out of your mouth. I know. That's, good job. Yeah, no, there's people who are uh, thinking that they're tuned into another show right now. Um, there's a lot I want to cover, but you, you early on said the lost art of wood, and then uh, two sentences later you said the art of barrel aging. So you've used art you know, twice now. Uh, but you, you, you started talking about wood before. You started talking about um, barrel aging and as that fifth ingredient. And what is it that you think wood brings to beer? What is it that barrel aging does to... to and, and you can speak specifically to the beers that you make, but, I mean, you, you obviously taste a lot of beers and you're out there. And, uh, you know, I, I hear consumers come in. Uh, to breweries all the time, and if they just see barrel aged, they're just going to go for it. And, and and I don't know if people have stopped to actually thought about what that means, what barrel aged means, or what um, wood actually means to a beer. Because we've gotten also away from 
barrels and we're seeing staves go into things, right. or whiskey-soaked staves, right. or uh, spirit-soaked, or wine-soaked, or whatever. Um, wood's going in, but yep. it's not right. barrel. So wood and barrels are two very different things. Yeah, yeah. Because when you when you age something in a barrel, you've got the oxygen component, which can change depending on what kind of beer you're making. Uh, and when it's wood staves, um, depending on the length of time or whatever, you, you've also eliminated the oxygen factor, the micro-oxygenation that gets between the, the wood pores. Yeah. Um, but to your original question, I think that wood gives a personality. Oak, oak barrel aging and, and wood added to beer gives a beer personality. And, and to the art thing, um, every, you, can, you can evoke a lot of different things out of the ingredients in beer. Temperature, fermentation, you know, choice of ingredients, um, mash temperatures, all that kind of stuff. But you can also do that with barrel aging, with wood aging, um, you know, what kind of wood you use, how long you leave it in there, if oxygen is present or not. There's all kinds of things you can do. And all that stuff is sort of the, um, at the discretion of the brewer and his tastes or, or maybe what they think the consumer wants or likes, but you can, and, and with blending, you can also bring all these different flavors. So you want something that's got a little more cinnamon note from these uh, oak staves, or you want some vanillins from the bourbon barrel, or you want a particular strain of Britannomyces, or in our case, you know, we've made some primary Britannomyces fermented beers that are very fruity and tropical and citrusy, um, and then we've made some that you throw it in the barrel for secondary fermentation. You get those funky barnyard. So point is, you can manipulate a lot of things with that fifth variable, the barrels, um, to to create something. In I really think it's an art form because it's it's something that you create that's kind of like near and dear to your heart and something you enjoy. But you're offering it up to the the user, in this case the drinker. Um, as opposed to the listener or the visual intake. Um, and, and that person gets to interpret your art as they want. Some people, we've made some fantastic beers and some other beers that I'm like, eh, they're okay, whatever. <laughs> and everyone has a different reaction to them. Sure. We, we have one beer uh, called Tangled Up in Blueberry. It's a it's a wild ale with blueberries. We use some local organic blueberries. Do, do all of your beer names have uh, song lyric references uh, or is that just one? Not all of them. Okay. But our, our Touch of Brett that got gold at the GABF yeah. was our Touch of Grey right. um, uh, thing. A lot of people don't get that one. We have a Here Comes the Sun coming out uh, Shortly, it's a beer to Mars. Uh-huh. Um, so we do. We've done it on about I don't know, maybe seventy percent of the beers. We've, we've okay. we're trying to kind of bring some of that music. We have one called Charlie Parliament, and there's some real funk going on in there. Okay. Um, so so we try to. All right. I, sorry, that was a, that's that was okay. A but yes, it's a great continue. question. Uh, but but we we call this blueberry beer our rosé of of wild beers because it's kind of tart and it's kind of okay and. I know we can do better. We've got some more of the blueberry beer aging longer in barrels. Uh, but I had um, a customer raving over how great the blueberry beer was. He had, a, he had a bottle of it, just thought it was wonderful. So everyone intakes art differently, you know. You can walk through museums around this town and see things totally different and not care. Some people are just blown away by, by the art that people are making. Um, and so that's why I kind of equate barrel aging to art because because I'm making something for the enjoyment of others, and you'll interpret it how you want to. I hope you like it, um, and I hope it moves you in some way. Um, and that's kind of kind of, and we use we use the wood and the barrels to kind of help us 
motivate that. For the main reason is that I love beers, aged in oak and wood. It just it it um, it's a passion of mine because I love what it does. It's so unpredictable, and uh, sometimes you can't really control what's going to happen, and that's fun. You mentioned the blueberry beer being your rosé, and you're you're opening up a tasting room in wine country, and we're seeing more and more. Uh, I mean, there's 10,000 wineries, there's 5,000 breweries. It's just, it, it's a, it was only a matter of time before uh, breweries started opening up in wine country or in wine areas. Um, but we're also seeing a lot more cross drinkers these days. And we're seeing people who might visit a winery in the morning and then swing by a brewery for a pint in the afternoon. They'll do the swirl and spit in the morning and then they want actually some something of substance. I hope that's the case. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hope they're not swirling and spitting at your place and yeah. then go drinking down yeah. uh, at the winery down the road. But... But we're seeing more and more of that um, these days. And so is it important to have wine terminology uh, come into beer just in the same way that I'm sure that some of the wineries uh, are bringing beer terminology? Uh, The two are seeming to coexist more and more these days where 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they were polar opposites. Wine was saying, basically saying, fuck you, beer. Um, and if you were you were either a wine drinker or you were a beer drinker, and never the two shall meet. Uh, these days, we're seeing a lot more intertwining. Uh, has that come from the consumers? Do you think? Has that come from the brewers? Because I know a lot of brewers that drink wine. I've had some great nights hanging out with brewers, drinking wines, going to wineries. Um, it's made the beer more interesting, certainly. Um, but I mean, what's your thought? Well, the first thing I'll say is all the rosé drinkers out there, I want you to know that I wasn't, uh, no offense, Right. <laughs> rosé can be very awesome, but sure. um, our blueberry beer needs, needs some work, uh, and it's just, it's just easy drinking, I guess. Um, but, but to your question, um, I'm not sure where it's come from, but I will agree that there is a lot more crossover, and, and there's several studies done on the marketing of consumers you know, especially the 20, 30s, and even 40s uh, drinker is not drinking just beer. They don't go out and just drink beer. They drink a cocktail, drink a glass of wine, and a beer all in the same night. And that's the truth. Uh, and people aren't brand loyal anymore either, you know. I, I'm not true. myself. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah, I, no, I, certainly not. I just yeah. go down the list and drink one of each. And so uh, b- because of that, you have to be able to promote your beer or, or talk about your beer in a way that reaches your consumer. And if your consumer is really wise about wine or cocktails, um, we already know. I, I think the whole time brewers knew and probably winemakers knew that beer and wine and spirits have a lot in common. But you're right. There was a time where it wasn't so much the case. And so... I think there's some common ground there. And, and I also want to mention, I never want to make ale song beer, hoity-toity, snooty, oh, ours is, you know, you're drinking that beer, you should come and drink our beer. It's not like that. Um, it's just that we've spent the time and effort to age these in barrels, and blend them back together, open a tasting room out in wine country. And so you're going to get some points where, where beer's going to cost more because I've aged it for a certain amount of time and paid for the barrels or whatever. Um, and you really want to enjoy the effort that was put into it. So you're talking about the nose. You're talking about, um, you know, 
the aftertaste. You're talking about food compliments and things like that. So I think probably as I dance around this question, probably the, <laughs> the main point I, I, sh- I would make is yeah. um, there's becoming more and more as we get farther into the craft beer history. I mean, you know, we're re- rather new. Craft beer is rather new, but it, but it's getting into it's past adolescence we're we're heading towards middle age now since well, I think, I, and i've said on this podcast i've said elsewhere i mean i think the word craft is almost dead at this point anyway so sure yeah sure. yeah it's, it's outlived beer. its usefulness yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and i and i don't disagree with you um but i think there's a sophistication now that people understand what beer tastes like and smells like and how it complements a meal and, right. and, things and what like it that. can be and what it can be like absolutely. aside from the one product fits all yeah. or the one you know the budweiser yeah. the miller the sure. core, that there's kind of thing. so yeah. much variety that you know some things work with this some there's a beer for every occasion some people you know when, when you become a professional brewer when you're in the craft beer industry people are like oh, i got a cores in the fridge you probably don't want that you're like no no no, no. no. There's, there's no bad beer right there's just some that's way better than others and there's some times when i want that Sure. Can of mega beer. Right. I've been out with brewers where, you know, we've killed a case of banquet. Yeah. P- PBR is uh, very prolific in the Northwest. It and, is. And, uh, and, and one of the things, too, that, and, I, and I love saying this uh, uh, now and again, is that at the Great American Beer Festival every year, when they announce the awards and uh, when they get to the American light lager category, uh, for the last several years, PBR has won. Uh, yeah. Not this past year. This past year, for the very first time, a small brewery that did about 1,200 barrels that. last year uh, won the gold yeah. in the American Light Lager category, unseating the Giants, which was fairly awesome. Uh, Brown Truck, they're out of yes. uh, North, North Carolina. Um, but, um, uh, but when PBR wins, even if it's a silver or bronze in that category, the room goes nuts yeah. in a good way. And it's not ironic, and it's not spiteful, it's not hateful. It's actually like... Hell yeah, PBR. One of ours made an American light lager that that won this competition. It's great. But I mean, when PBR wins, though, the crowd erupts as well. The crowd goes nuts and not in a spiteful way. No, right. The crowd is genuinely excited because PBR has that sort of goofy cachet to it. That Yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. I've been fortunate to judge the American light lager at JBF, and I love seeing who wins and who I gave the award to. Oh, yeah. You got your favorite from college days and whatever, and... One year I judged it. There's something it. nostalgic. Yeah. Oh, it is. And once I learned what, what who won the year I judged, it was Old Milwaukee Light, <laughs> Coors Light, and something else. can't remember the third one. Like Miller Light or one uh, of those. It's something. Yeah. But yeah. immediately I got on the phone and told my dad, Coors Light, which he drinks now. Yeah. Um, he'll drink some craft beer. But Coors Light is what he drinks now. And Old Milwaukee Light was his go-to when I was an eight-year-old. And he handed me that can. And yeah. I said beer sucks this is awful <laughs> and it's not because it was an american light lager it's because right, no, i was you eight. Were eight yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. uh i mean in, in fairness like it's still yeah. yeah but those kind of beers have a real passionate following and they evoke something out of people even though they're american light lagers it's and beer. that's and that's one of the things um so you're talking about sort of changing the way that people think about beer quite a bit. Um, and with 5,000, with, uh, with us getting to a lot more these days, uh, you've thought a lot about strategy and you've thought a lot about positioning and you've thought a lot about, you know, how, uh, you know, if you're a big guy, you could be a medium guy, small guy. I guess you fall into the, to the small guy category. Uh, these days, but it's it's not as mu- it's not enough these days to simply say, oh, we have a brewery and our doors are open, people are going to come. You really have to. Uh, years ago, it would have been that way. Yep. Um, but I mean, what do you see as the shift in strategy for breweries 
and, and what we need, and even what consumers should start thinking about now. Sure. Well, um, it is different today with so many breweries and so many choices and people, you know, choosing their local beers over, you know, something else or someone seeing the, the new out-of-state brewer come in that you've heard so much about and trying. There's a lot of different things happening in our industry right now, but it is different because it used to be, just like you said, open the doors and they will drink and it happened sure. no matter the size. It's the field of dreams, yeah. yeah. What I... The, the, first of all, the biggest thing I feel bad for is those breweries who were mid-size or bigger breweries who five, six, four to six years ago, three to six years ago, said, this industry is awesome. We're just 50% growth per year, 30% growth per year. And they decided to go after the project of increasing capacity, um, hoping that it would continue that way. And I'm seeing a lot of breweries now who have put in the capacity that are sort of, they're still growing, but it might be much slower than their projections or plateauing a little bit because there's so many other competitive forces out there. And so I feel bad because they still have to pay the bank back on their loan for their expansion. And, and that's a challenge. Uh, so they'll have to sort of change their strategy and they may have put in a pretty big building, but they may not be filling it out with fermenters and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and all sizes of breweries probably have to change their strategy of, of how they did, how they want to sell things, how much beer they put out. Um, and I would also say breweries who you see making less beer than the year before or the same amount of beer, it doesn't mean that their business is any less profitable. There's people who are making decisions to not add a sales rep in this territory or if someone leaves their business, maybe not replace them because they're not making as much. And I've seen it. You know, in, in my area of the country, in Oregon, where it's very saturated, people are making that decision. So if you have less payroll and make the same amount of beer, you're probably making more profit. Right. And, and that's fine because, remember, at the end of the day, we are a business. Um, but for a small brewery like mine, we're very small. Haven't even been a year yet. And 2000, part of the year last year, we made about 100 barrels, sold about 100 barrels. Wow. Um, have a bunch more in barrels. We probably made closer to five, 450 barrels but a lot's wrapped up in barrel inventory, um, it makes you a lot more flexible. And so um, we can hold off on hiring an employee, which we don't have yet. Um, so what I think is going to happen is there will be more breweries open, but they have to, A, focus on quality. That's what every brewery needs to do that anyway. A hundred percent. But that's the only way that we can have more breweries is focus on quality. Focus on your home market. You don't have to go deep into your market, but make sure the people in your town know you. Don't just start sending beer willy-nilly everywhere, because that will help you do volume. Um, that doesn't work. Make sure people in your town know you and want your beer. Um, you also need to give people an experience, and that's always been the case in craft beer, that you go into a pub and you feel welcome, or they've got events going on, or even if you're not in their pub, you're seeing their bottle, their label, their, their flavors, their social media. You need to give the people an experience, otherwise you're just a beer. You're just like part of the 5,000 breweries out there. So um, trying to find ways to hook people in on the experience is huge. So. I think more local breweries are going to happen because there's a big thirst. There's pockets in this country that are without breweries still, even with 5,000 across the country. So it'll happen. Will we have huge volume growth by big breweries, mid-sized breweries? Probably not. Yeah. But more breweries will open. And what that does is it brings people to craft beer. And this is what I've always told people throughout my career. When you drink craft beer, 
you don't you, you don't really backtrack and go, well, for four years I was doing the IPAs, but now I'm more of a Coors Light guy, and I just stick with that. Like, there's a few people like that. For the most part, when you get a flavor for beer, your taste buds are changing, your attitude's changing, your, probably your friend circle's changing, and you're not going to go back to swilling the suds. You're right. going to look for something better and trade up. And I'm hoping people trade up to barrel-aged beers in wine country of Oregon, but that's just me being selfish. Well, sure. I, I understand that. As people trade up um, and as they get into this, this is a, I'm, I'm glad you sort of brought this up, um, the, the phrase that I hear from folks all the time are, uh, or the phrase is, uh, are sours the new IPAs? Uh, and they use the word sour without fully understanding what it is that they're saying. Because I, 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 don't, I don't think that they do. And I don't think that there's a lot of folks, um, you know, sour is a generic sort of catch-all term. Um, and we were talking before, uh, while we were having some beers, uh, before we started recording, uh, and you said that, that sour is the word, uh, you didn't quite do the nails on chalkboard, but you, you kind of got close. It, it bothers me. Yeah. I, I can tell you about that okay. if you'd like to. Please. Um, well, you know, in today's day and age with social media and, and all kinds of clickbait articles out there on your phone and on your computer. That's all about beer.com for all your clickbait needs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, <laughs> And That's not true. Boy, just to, to see what people, the information people take in today is like, you read it and then it's in your in your head and in your brain. So you say it. Everyone sees sour this, sour that, sour that. So everything just becomes sours. Do you like the sours? What do you got that's sour? Um, we just started selling some beer in San Francisco and, and my two business partners are at San Francisco Beer Week, which just kicked off. And uh, people, there's an event called Sour Sunday, but it's all about barrel-aged beers with a focus on sour and wild beers. And everyone, I think, came up to the booth and said, what's your most sour beer? Everyone was wanting the, the most sour, like, hurt my taste buds. And so so here's what I think about the term. So did you just start giving people lemon juice at that point? Just the <laughs> lemon know. juice concentrate? If that's what you want. Yeah. Uh, here's, I here's, bet you that there are brewers that could do that and get away with it and get oh, five bet. stars oh, on tapped. Nice yeah. Berliner Weiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, here's my, my pet peeve. I've, I've got two. One is calling, uh, using the word Belgium and Belgian wrong. That's one of them. Okay. But we, we can talk about that on another, yeah, that's, another show. That's, uh, yeah, that's after uh, this one is over. The other yeah. one is uh, just calling a beer a sour. Sour is an adjective, not a noun. And so if you called it a sour beer or a sour ale, I would... That would be a little better. I was a teacher for six years. I like to use grammar. You were an ways. English teacher? I was actually a science teacher. A science teacher. It doesn't teacher. matter. I okay. still want to mold the brains still, of okay. humans. Uh, yeah. So sour is an adjective. You should say sour something. Sour beer, sour ale. That's at least a little bit better. Right. A sour. Right, a is sour. Not, yeah. But the biggest reason that I, it, 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 I cringe is because exactly what I was saying that people said at this festival is, what's your most sour? Because when someone thinks it's a sour, whether it's a Berliner Weiss, a Goza, um, a Lambic, a Goose, um, uh, Flanders Red, a Nude Brune, whatever it is, those subcategories of sours. Yeah. Um, it's a binary state. You either, it, is, it, either, it either is yeah, sour, sour or it is not. That's right. right. Or they look at it on a scale and say, well, yours isn't as sour as that Cascade beer I had or that the Guard beer I had or whatever name, put in a sour beer brewery. Um, and that's not what I was going for. You might have wanted some mild. Are you just filling with white hot rage as you're talking yeah, to people? It gets me is angry. This, yeah. Yes, it gets me. That's angry. why they're out at SF Beer Week, yeah. and you're sitting here with me in New that, York. That's right. right now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to talk. to Let's them. keep Matt no, away you, from the you consumers. You can make a wonderful yeah. Brett fermented beer that's maybe got some acidity. Um, all beer has acidity. It's low in pH, but. 
everyone says, oh, you put bread in there, it's a sour beer. It's not a sour beer. Bread doesn't, bread makes some acids, but lactobacillus makes the acid and pediococcus and other of course. things. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done. And I'm, I'm very willing to be, do that education. That's why we need this retail location where we're doing so we can talk to people and say, this is a beer we made. Here's the flavor profile. Here, you know, people that are, here's another wine analogy. If you're at a winery and you're tasting out some red wines, you wouldn't want the most tannic, oaky, big, you know, unaged, I mean, super aged, but um, first use oak barrels because it would just it would kill the, the wine drinker's palate. And that kind of arms race that we've seen in IPAs where it was hoppier is better or now it's sour is better. I don't want people to judge my beer on how sour it was. Because if, if that's what I wanted, I would give them the lemon juice and say, here, that's pretty sour, right? You love it? And they probably would. Sure. So anyway, it's all about balance and, and, and um, enjoyment of, of all the elements of the beer and not just the sour part. Well, it's a marketing term yeah, that people are sure. using these days. And they're not sort of dicing it down uh, into the into the finer level. You could say the same thing about IPA. If someone hears the word IPA, give me it, I like it, whether it's a Session IPA, Red IPA, Black IPA, Northeast IPA, Northwest IPA, whatever it right. is, they know they like IPA, so they do it. So you just call something that because then it'll lead to sales. And Absolutely. Same way with sour. Everyone loves sours, sour beer, sour ales, so just call it one of your sours and they'll drink it. I'm not about that yet. No, and, and I and I do think that people do have to think about the individual flavors. So I, I am in the very uh, small minority of uh, of IPA drinkers. I don't like mosaic. Mm, I don't like mosaic hops. All I get is uh, cat piss uh-huh. off of it. Yeah. I, I'm told that mosaic has this really wonderful tropical fruit flavor to it. Uh-huh. But uh, I know about four or five other people who all they get is cat box, and I'm, I'm one of them. Yeah. So I actually now will ask brewers, if because I, I enjoy IPA uh, of, of all stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it has mosaic in it, I'm not going to enjoy it. And yeah. so I actively now try to stay away from there. Um, but that's me thinking about this quite a bit. And I just, I wonder, as, as drinkers get more and more into uh, sour beer, um, are they going to start to think about the individual layers of it? Are they going to dice it up? Um, and then, I mean, how do you push people towards towards breaking it down because we can talk about hops we can talk about IPAs and we can say you know do you like pine or you know do you have grapefruit in the morning or you know all these cliches that we've done for a while that have sort of helped uh, you know uh, the base of things are oh you love pineapple I got pineapple for you you know this one's got peach you know it's like going to a used car lot in in a lot of ways of uh, we got whatever you need Um, how how do you do that for sour beer well I I think that uh, that needs to happen too that's the part of the education but I think the, it, that type of, of discussion is very much in its infancy, and that's also why that excites me about opening a, a, a brewery like we did. Um, because when you talk about the strain of Brettanomyces you use, Brett Brooks, Bruxellensis versus Lambicus versus Clausenai versus a blend of those, and if you do primary fermentation versus secondary fermentation with that Brett, you've got all kinds of different flavors. So sometimes it's more tropical and fruity, sometimes it's more horsey, horse blanket, hay, barnyard sort of stuff. So those are the things you can talk about. You can also use the same words that wineries use and say, well, you know, is it really dry and tannic? And there's a minerality sometimes in certain beer styles. And so um, 
you know, I think those are the flavors you can come out. And, and then you've got other hosts of ingredients in there. You know, fruit, you can have a sour beer with, with different fruit. So I think that vocabulary that you're talking about that we use with hoppy beers has become mainstream. And I think that there could be a time, maybe, that sour beers, wild beers, barrel-aged beers have their language that people are understanding. Certainly the, certainly those that buy a lot of these go-to tasting rooms where they're drinking Brett beers, sour beers, barrel-aged beers, kind of have that vocabulary. But it's still in that infancy where people might be a little afraid to, to talk about it. You know, it's, you know, to say, does that smell like wet hay? You might feel a little weird saying that, but... If that's not a flavor you like in beer, you're welcome to, to ask it. Yeah. And, and just like any beer also, it's it's better to have a sample of it. You, you can talk all you want about what the flavor profile is, but you, as you know, palates are individual, and you perceive mosaic hops differently than some other people. Absolutely, yeah. So the same thing will happen with sour beers. What's sour to someone is, like, mildly tart to someone else. So uh, there's, there's still a lot of individuality, and I think that sort of discussion and education is is still going to happen and that's why again we're excited to kind of i don't want to say on the forefront of making these styles of beer but uh, there's not a you know it's not mainstream right now and we're happy to educate people I, I i think that there are there are a lot of people who do wild beers and sour beers and 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 wood beers i think you're right that uh, it is a small uh, a small group of you that are solely doing that, or solely, uh, you know, dedicated to doing, you know, beer that is just in wood or beer that is uh, uh, inoculated with, uh, with 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 wild yeasts. Um, this is something I'm just curious because I've talked with uh, with other guests about this in the past. Um, what is your definition of wild yeast? I'm glad you brought that up because I know it's it's debated, just like the topic of what's. What's your definition of the brewmaster? You know, people are very passionate about whether you should be called head brewer or brewmaster. I think this falls into that same argument. Absolutely. Is uh, what is wild? Uh, you know, a lot of people who believe that wild means spontaneous fermentation, where it has to be left out in a cool ship. Like a cool ship, yeah. To be inoculated by the, the yeast. You know, that can be wild, too. The reason I call Brett beers and beers with lactobacillus and pediococcus, I call them wild beers, and other people do, too, um, is because one thing I said earlier was... Saccharomyces is rather predictable. You know certain temperatures, certain pitch rates, you can get what you want. You can evoke the flavors you want and the finishing gravity, the alcohol level. With Brettanomyces, you can do that too, but it's harder because sometimes Brett has a mind of its own. And to me, that kind of defines wild. If you think of a wild horse, it's something that's not quite tame because you don't have the answers of how it's going to behave. Right. Um, and so when I throw botanomyces, even if it was cultured in a lab and didn't just come out of the air, um, to me that's wild because I think I know where it's going to go, but things kind of change. We have some beers we have used botanomyces in the bottle conditioning that have finished at zero. Plato, there is absolutely no sugar left. And we've had some that have finished at 0.4. We had a bread IPA that stopped at 2.4. This is Plato. Yeah, uh, yes. About the same. Um, and we were really yeah, like I like I know what I'm talking about. I'm just gonna be like, sure, of course, yeah. No, it's, the, uh, the listeners sugar, are much smarter than I am. There was yeah. sugar content yes. left there, and we're just worried that it's gonna overcarbonate because the Brett can keep on going. If it doesn't keep on going, then you have flat beer. It it's keeps a, it's on a going. sleeper. Yeah, as, uh, as exactly. Your friend said, right. Yeah. And so we're trying to predict how much you know bottling sugar to add so that the Brett will do its thing. 
It's very unpredictable. To me, that's wild. Um, and, and, and when you think about wild beers, they're often funky and kind of have that sort of, um, you know, we've talked about bar- barnyard and horsey and earthy and hay, all those flavors that come with the Britannomyces. It's just, that funkiness is, is wild. So I don't get as excited about or as passionate about wild versus sour. If someone wants to say what we're doing is not wild, that's fine. We are going to, as we get this new tasting room open, experiment with some spontaneous fermentation. So we'll probably call that wild as well. Um, so still debatable. Okay. I like that. On the current cover of All About Beer magazine, uh, we talk about the future of beer. Uh, so I've been asking folks, uh, where do you see the industry going? Or what is an innovation that you would like to see uh come up or happen or what would you like to see happen in the short term or the far term or what are you hopeful for well boy that's a good question of course i hope that everyone drives to my brewery and drinks barrel aged beer in 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 huge amounts um but in all seriousness, I love variety in beer. I love that we have so many choices to drink, style-wise, brewery-wise, big breweries, small breweries, medium-sized breweries. I hope that we don't um, change that sort of variety that's out there um, because there's so many breweries doing so many different things. We live in a time now that has never been like this before. And so I don't know what the future is going to be. I think there's going to be more breweries open up. I think there's going to be bigger breweries who wish they had grown a little more and and don't. Um, But there's a place for large regional breweries who are selling in every grocery store chain. There's a place for small local corner breweries who are just serving their neighborhood. Um, And I hope that continues to happen. And I think the last thing, I hope that there continues to be a camaraderie amongst breweries because this industry is like no other where people share ideas, they share beers. Um, and, you know, as we get bigger, you do see more people kind of holding a little information closer to their, their chest and, and not maybe giving it out. Um, but the best way to continue to make better beer is to share your knowledge with others. And so hopefully that continues to happen. That is one of those things, though. With, with, we do see... I mean, the competition has never been more fierce. Right. Uh, the, the fight for shelf space, or a, a more so these days, I'm saying the fight for people's time, in that uh, it used to be, all right, I'm going to walk into a package store, and I'm going to buy a six-pack. And I don't know what my six-pack is going to be, and maybe I'll choose your beer, or maybe I'll choose somebody else's beer, but I'm going to walk out with, with a six-pack, and that person has gotten my money, and, and you didn't. These days, I'm seeing brewers uh, really worry about fighting for people's time. So coming to your brewery for two hours in the afternoon and spending 50, 60 bucks or whatever they're going to do, depending on where you are, how much they're drinking or how big their party is, and then going home and not going out and buying that six-pack from somebody else at the end of the day uh, because their money has gone to. Or I have 10 breweries in my area, and I'm going to go, and I have two hours to spare with my wife in the afternoon. We're going to go out and we hang out at a brewery, and then we're not going to the brewery down the road um, as well. I mean, is, is that something as well that you're, that you're thinking about? Absolutely. That is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle when we look at our craft beer industry because, as, as you know, uh, retail dollars are so much higher margin. And so 
a business can succeed or fail based on their retail dollars. If you're going to be a distributing brewery, you need to grow through that small and mid-size to something bigger to make it make sense because you're basically giving some of your profit up to the distributor and the retailer who sell your beer in that grocery store. And, and that's an important part of, of the three-tier system. No doubt. We need the, that to happen. But you're making so little per ounce that you need to sell a lot of it. If you're a small brewery, you can thrive on the tasting room model, the brew pub model, where you're selling retail dollars. And if you have a bunch of brew pubs or tasting rooms in your area, you need to fight for that because if they're all going to the cool kid down the street, then you're paying all this rent and, and all this overhead for not much beer sales. And so that's something we've looked into a lot is that we want to sell beer directly to the consumer, whether it's in the glass or um, by the bottle. And we'll get more out there into, into the stores if we can, but I want to talk to people. I want people to come in and experience our wine country tasting room. And I believe that even in an urban setting, you want people to come into your tasting room and talk to the brewers, talk to the bartenders, because that's where you build your brand and that's where I mentioned giving the customer an experience the best way to do it is in your home spot your brew pub or your tasting room because they get to know you as a person mm -hmm. and you as a brand and um, those that succeed in the future are going to be the ones who really capitalize on having an awesome experience in their tasting room and their pub because because it's a profitable venture and it further proliferates their brand in that people will buy it outside of here, whether it's in a bar at a pint or in a grocery store with a six pack. So I think that's key to being a successful brewery. That's Matt Van Wyk of Elsong Brewing and Blending. Learn more about his brewery at elsongbrewing.com. You've been listening to After Two Beers, the interview podcast from All About Beer magazine. Learn all you need to know about being a better beer drinker at allaboutbeer.com and subscribe to the magazine. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also reach out to me via Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's H-O-L-L. The interview for this episode was recorded on location at New York City's Blind Tiger Ale House on Bleecker Street and edited by Kyle McCauley. The show is produced by Daniel Hardis, and I'm John Hall. That's it for this edition of After Two Beers. Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. After Two Beers is brought to you by Guinness. Brewers of the world's most famous pub beers for over 200 years. And by All About Beer magazine. Explore the culture of beer through award-winning news, reviews, education, and insights. Print and digital subscriptions are available by visiting allaboutbeer.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest beer news and to connect with fellow enthusiasts.